This is episode 55 with Lisa Stalaker. G'day legends and welcome to Your Life of Impact, where we connect with world-class athletes and coaches, health experts and enthusiasts, inspiring entrepreneurs and community leaders, all to teach you how to tap into your inner excellence. I'm your host, Brett Robbo, and I'm extremely grateful you're joining us today on Your Impactful Journey. Lisa Stalaker is the former captain of Australia's international women's cricket team. She retired from international cricket after winning the 2013 Women's Cricket World Cup. Lisa has a very decorated cricketing career and has now moved into commentary for the men's and women's cricket on the world stage. As with most athletes on this podcast, we didn't really talk too much about Lisa's sport. We discussed her life view as an adopted child and her passion in this space and her experience of breaking into a male-dominated industry and also her mental strength training in sport and in life. Before we dive into Lisa's awesome story, I'm just going to take the time to read a quick iTunes review and this one is from a no-name titled Just Fantastic saying, always look forward to listening to this podcast. Please keep up with your work. Thank you. Well, thank you very much to No Name for taking the time and effort to write that review. And as all you long-term listeners know, it's vitally important for us to get those reviews to keep this podcast alive. So I'm extremely grateful for everyone who does take that time and effort to write a review, even just a short one like that. Now let's hear from one of Australia's best sports people. So Lisa, you're a female commentator in a sport that until not so long ago was seen as a male dominant sport. And I love it as I'm always inspired by females and I've had a lot of female mentors in my life. But how has the whole experience been for you? Oh, look, I, I kind of fell into commentary. Uh, I got an opportunity when I was a, a player to do about five overs between Tony Gregg and Mark Nicholas and I thoroughly enjoyed it. Five overs went like that and I said, how do I get this gig? This is uh, this is what I want to do when I retire. And I got the opportunity to, through ABC Grandstand, to, to start calling some of the Big Bash games and, and from there it kind of took off and I wanted to give myself a great opportunity to do it. And I didn't think or see that I was a female in a male-dominated environment. So I was going to ask you, how well you remember how it actually felt the very first you were t- very first time you were commentating men's cricket but you just said then that you absolutely loved it yeah i i thoroughly enjoyed it great advantage point as well you're up nice and high behind the bowler's arm you've got all the the information in front of you the screens and yeah like i said it just uh, went by in a flash and when they said that's it i was like what that's it i, I don't get to do anymore and they're like yeah i was like Okay, all right, and just kind of ever since then, and and that was probably 2010 or maybe 2009, and I just every time uh, the SCG test was on, I'd go to Channel Nine offices uh, to their their broadcasting space and always say hello and just hang around and listen to what the guys were saying and just wanted to to kind of give myself that opportunity to to learn more and and one thing I noticed when you retire as a female athlete 
you either go into coaching, administration within the sport, or you go back to your career that you studied at during when you first started playing cricket. Uh, whilst I was playing cricket, I was working full-time for Cricket New South Wales as a high-performance coach that oversaw all of the junior elite female programs across the state. So in a sense, I felt like I'd already done that uh, when at the time there wasn't there wasn't really any females calling the game of cricket. And I thought, given that uh, women's cricket is, is a growing market in the sense that um, more people are starting to understand the women's game, but also so many females love and watch the game, why shouldn't there be a female voice explaining it, even though it's, a, it's the men's game? And you obviously had a very determined mindset within cricket. Did you take that with you into the commentary and just be determined to be an amazing or a well-respected commentator? Well, I, I kind of uh, looked at commentary as almost when I first started playing cricket. I was pretty rubbish, but practice makes perfect. And I'm very diligent with uh, the information that I gather and collecting of stats and trying to get across who the players are, not only numbers-wise, but you know, are there any interesting stories about them? So I ensure that I, I, I do my homework well. And it's quite funny that the, the small amount of female commentators that are out there globally are exactly the same because there is a sense and a feeling that if either one of us stuff up, it's going to be labelled, well, female commentators aren't very good instead of, oh, Lisa Stalake is not very good. So it kind of gives us all a bad reputation. And given that there's been a change in the landscape and, and people are more willing and accepting to have females in the commentary box, we want to, all of us want to ensure that we get it right. And the funny thing is that so many times people get a number of us confused regularly. So Mel Jones and I do the Big Bash coverage and we've travelled around the world together to do different series and tournaments. And also Isha Gua is a English player of Indian descent and a lot of people get all three of us mixed up. So as long as we're all doing a good job, then it doesn't really matter. <laughs> That's great. Now, before we move on and we'll dive deeper into the female sports a lot more in this chat, I want to say, Lisa, welcome to your life of impact. <laughs> Thank you very much. We've been introduced by the amazingly humble, generous, kind soul of Kath Cashel, who actually gets a lot of mentions on this podcast. And I believe that you guys were teammates and working together in the cricket space. Yeah, we were actually, um, as I mentioned, uh, I was working at Cricket New South Wales with junior programs and Kath Koshell was one of the players that came up through the junior ranks and I had an opportunity to work with her at uh, the under-19 level and very determined person who understood her limitations but tried to find ways of, of getting around it. And then you fast forward a few more years and, and we're working in the same organisation at Cricket New South Wales and then we're, we were in the same squad, the New South Wales Breakers squad and I remember the time when it trained extremely hard. She'd do cardio sessions two two to three times a day to, to help get herself fitter for for state cricket uh, and that's obviously and I'm sure your listeners have heard Kath Koshell's story of how she started to lose feeling in her leg and I was actually in the consult because it was just upstairs in the offices when she was speaking to one of our, um, our physios at the time and just said oh no I can't really feel that and I said Kath you need to get on top of that that's a bit of an issue and she played it really cool and and then obviously the rest is history but uh, 
uh, our lives have kind of been intertwined and um, it's been fascinating to watch how she just finds herself in terrible situations but finds a way to be positive about it and uh, that's a credit to her. Absolutely. I'm grateful that your lives have been intertwined and that Kath has connected us and she's very inspirational. There's a lot that all of us can learn from her story and yours as well. Now, Lisa, you have a very interesting and proud story of your adopted upbringing and as an adopted child, you knew from a young age, uh, sorry, you knew from a young age that you were adopted and I've read that you you liked that because it gave you your uniqueness. Tell us a bit more about that. Yeah, exactly that. I was adopted uh, three weeks of age uh, in India. My adoptive parents were actually after a son and they were living, my father's Indian and my mother was white English and um, obviously they came back to India because uh, back then it was probably easier for them to adopt um, because of my father's nationality with uh, with India and uh, like I said they were looking for uh, a little boy and they went to a number of different orphanages and uh, didn't find a connection and finally the last one couple of days before they were to fly out one of the nurses said oh there's this little girl that's out on loan uh, a practice that's kind of done a lot back then to ensure that uh, all babies kind of have that physical connection uh, and time with people so that they can help instead of being stuck in, I guess, a facility like an orphanage where there's 30 babies to three or four staff. So they went out to to have a look and um, straight away they all had a connection with me and yeah the rest is history got the within a, a matter of a couple of days I, I was on the plane back to America with them so quite a unique story and and I guess because uh, I play cricket and in in that sense maybe my father did get his little boy in the end but uh, as long as I can remember I, I was always told that I was adopted there was never you know some unveiling <clears throat> when you were 18 or 21 as the Hollywood films would make you think that's how it's all done. There was, there was no hiding about it. And like and like you said, yeah, I always found it quite a unique story and, and pretty cool and pretty different. And you went back to the orphanage in India where you were adopted. How was that experience for you? I didn't really want to go back, to be honest. Uh, I'd never had a desire to, to go back. I never had a desire to find my biological parents. I always felt that I... I had the perfect upbringing. I had the perfect parents and I was very fortunate. I went to an orphanage in, I think, 2007 when I was in India with um, the Australian women's side and that was quite confronting um, because all of a sudden I thought, well, you know, what if I was still one of those those children growing up in an orphanage, learning there, trying to get work and, and become independent? You know, where would my life have taken me? And then 2012 actually went back to Pune where I was born and my manager at the time said let's find your orphanage because we were actually releasing my autobiography in India and I said okay if you can find it and got some information off my father and then he found the orphanage and we went there and they did a welcoming home ceremony which was really touching and emotional actually and and then when I spoke to my father after that experience he kind of said oh was the spiral staircase still there that you know that you go up to where the newborns were and I said yeah it is and it was quite fortuitous because a week later the orphanage was going to move to a new facility because it had finally grown out of that facility so I was lucky enough to to go back to the same place that my parents went to. And it obviously means a lot to you to give back 
to this space because you're also now working with the organisation called Adopt Change? Yeah. Actually, since I've become an ambassador for Adopt Change, which is the organisation that's uh, the patrons, Deborah Lee Finesse, and their kind of mission is to change the process or the red tape that adoptive parents and adoptees have to go through to find a permanent home. And it's kind of made me aware of all the stories that are out there that, you know, there's a certain amount of stigma out in the public about being adopted, about taking away kids from their biological parents and putting them in another home and in another environment. And and it may be sometimes in a different country. And so, yeah, I've I've heard a lot of different stories and I'm, I'm very passionate about it because, you know, like I said, I was one of the lucky ones. I got a great opportunity to come to Australia to play all sorts of sports sports to to be educated and and all of that grounding has now allowed me to achieve what I already have done but hopefully there's still more to come so I fully believe that all kids deserve a permanent loving family home and we need to ensure that kids aren't left out in the dark in that respect. And how is your experience in this environment with the changes that you know need to be made and the changes that you're actually seeing happen and some of the challenges that you face? It's been an interesting process. Obviously, I guess my role with Adopt Change is is to kind of shed light on the issue and to have someone talk positively about their experiences. Now, I know that's not all the case for for everyone, but I actually copped a bit of criticism about my story. You know, people saying, well, well, of course they want to share your story because it's a positive one. And it's like, well, I can only share what I know and what I'm experiencing and, and how I felt during those times. So you can criticise me or not, but that's that was my experience in life. So, yeah, it's about creating that awareness. And, and then obviously behind the scenes, there are a lot of people behind the organisation that are campaigning to in, improve the standards. And certainly here in New South Wales, the adoption numbers are the highest out of every state. There's been some policy changes which has allowed for people that are wanting to adopt, they don't have to wait four or five years. So, you know, the process is a little bit quicker, but certainly things can improve. And Hugh Jackman is also an ambassador for this organisation, I've seen. Yeah, obviously um, married to Deborah Lee Finesse, he's got no choice. Obviously their family, they've adopted kids as well. So this um, this certainly touches them personally. It really is Deborah Lee's baby, so to speak. It's, it's what she's been passionate about and, and he's always there willing to lend a hand. Brilliant. And you said there about being criticised about sharing a positive story, which is a shame, but I guess that's what you will get in any areas of life. And I guess it's possibly been like that for you in your cricketing career as well. But And I want to talk a little bit about your cricket, but I want to sort of explore it in a different way. Now, you obviously have a lot of highlights like your debut that I'm sure is fresh in your mind and winning the 2013 World Cup. And I'm sure there's plenty of other highlights that go through with that. But I'm interested to know what the game of cricket has done for you holistically. So not just setting you up for your commentary career, but what you learn about nutrition, mindset particularly, leadership or human behaviour in general. Yeah, I think sport is great, whether it be cricket or any kind of team sport. I think uh, the lessons you learn throughout playing team sport just holds you in good stead for what life's going to be like. Uh, you'll have some highs absolutely where you, you're on cloud nine and everyone loves you because you've taken this classic catch or you scored a lot of runs and you helped the team to win. But then you've got the disappointments, the disappointments of not performing well, of losing finals, of being 
dropped for me personally, losing the captaincy. You know, there, there's so many highs and lows that, that go with that. And like I said, I think it does hold you in good stead for life. And also the things that you learn along the way, like you mentioned, nutrition, how to eat, how to be healthy, how to look after your body. It does certainly help you. Like, for instance, I have a golden retriever and uh, she recently had an ACL surgery, um, had to get it fixed. Now, a lot of people don't really know how to kind of deal with swelling and they weren't sure what to do with a dog, but I actually got the dog to sit down and I'd ice it and then I'd rub out and get the swelling out of it. So the things that I learnt as an athlete, <laughs> I applied I applied to my dog and then, and then took her swimming slowly and, and built that up, um, you know, things that I'd learned as an athlete, how to kind of come back from an injury. I just tried to apply it to the dog and now, thankfully, uh, she's fine and running around and having a great time. So just stupid things like that they help you. Um, I was fortunate enough that my father was a sports psychologist and a hypnotherapist. So from a young age, I think I always had a slight advantage in my peers in the sense that uh, I did a lot of mental uh, rehearsal, visualisation before games. You know, I set goals from a very young age, or, or not the main goals of I want to play for Australia. Absolutely, that was there. But the small stepping stones that got me to that position and then how I was going to do it. So I was exposed to sports psychology probably 10 years before everyone else or before it kind of came into cricket. So I'd certainly think that my father played a key role in in getting me in the right mental frame that you need to be And, and. you, you hear that cricket is, is played, you know, 20% skill, 80% in the mind or even 90% in the mind. So everyone's skill level is good enough, is similar at the same, at a high level. What's what's the difference between a Steve Smith and Peter Hanscom? Well, Steve Smith's on top of his game and mentally he knows what he's going to do. So that makes the difference. So I think, you know, I had that advantage and, and those lessons I learned from a young age from my father the things that I still apply now, even in the commentary uh, industry. That's really interesting. And I wanted to dive into your mental strength training side of things. So that makes a lot of sense. And you mentioned there visualization. Is is that something that you, because you obviously take a lot of this mental strength training from what you learn from your dad and your sport into the commentary, like you said, do you use visualization as a tool to visualize your goals now as, as a non-athlete? Is that one of the strengths that you take with you, the skills? I wouldn't say I visualize as much. Now, the reasons why I did a lot of mental rehearsal and visualization from cricket, it was, so say the night before I was, you know, before a big game at the SCG, I'd picture myself out there on the SCG, imagining what the stands would be like, what the side screen and the opposition coming into bowl. And, you know, there were a couple of different ways you could visualise yourself. You could be like you're watching a TV and you're watching yourself. Or I think the best way was that you were actually inside your body. So you started to go through those patterns of how do you relax in between deliveries? Um, How do you face up? How do you stroke the ball through covers, you you know, against a certain bowler who has the wood on you? Um, that was when I, I probably used it a lot more. As for now, certainly I, I, I think and I visualise of where I'd like my, my career to go, my life to go from, from leaving the game to now where it is. And um, it was only three years ago that I really left my full-time job at Cricket New South Wales, not having anything to go to, nothing full-time, just a little bit of contract work, to now – 
being able to travel around the world and commentate and, and call that my full-time job. So um, I never thought I'd get to where I am as quickly as I have, um, but certainly there is there's still plenty of things that I want to tick off uh, along this journey. What would you say, given your depth of understanding and growing up with a father in that space, how do you give advice to people that will come to you in their life so it's not sport related but you know you I'm guessing that you understand the human mind quite well and human behavior and how we as humans do have quite a lot of control over our thought processes and our external reality what do you find is the main thing in in society so people away from sport that we sort of struggle with in terms of our mental strength? I think, you know, and I'll give a prime example. My sister and I are brought up in the same environment, same father, same mother. I'm so goal-orientated, whereas she's not. uh, She's completely different. She kind of floats through life and she's happy, but she hasn't got that drive. There's a stark reminder of that, um, you know, two people being brought up in the same household can be completely different. But I think in general with people, people get lost and sometimes their emotions take over uh, the logical path um, and it's very hard to separate and it's very easy, you know, as the the outsider or the one listening to go, oh, all you have to do is kind of step yourself through that. I'm a very pragmatic person and, and I always think there's a rhyme and reasons uh, to why certain things happen. Uh, so I guess the advice that I try and give is I try and take the emotion out of it and and just get them to to kind of articulate it in a different way. Uh, And then hopefully they find they need to find the answers as much as you'd like to to lead them to it until they believe it, until they want it. um, They're never going to certainly change. But, yeah, I think emotions always tend to get in the way, which – uh, which aren't, which isn't a bad thing, certainly, because I think that's what drives us. That's what makes us human beings. But we sometimes let them get the better of us. Absolutely, it sounds like what you're referring to there, and in relationship to your sister and goal setting, and and all of us in general is that clarity. When we can create clarity in our life of what we are working towards, then it can really help set things up for us and take a lot of the struggles away. Yep. Perfectly put. Thank you, Brett. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, back to the cricket game and uh, talking about the mental tests. Is is there any games that really come to mind that have just really tested you mentally? Well, I think early on in my career when I was kind of slowly getting going up the pathways and the representative size, there would be certain oppositions or bowlers that I would struggle with, like almost go out to bat. And, you know, as soon as you go out to bat, they'll come on to bowl. And it was like, "Mm, okay, here's my wicket. (laughs) Okay, might as well go off now. I I remember those times being quite difficult. And, yeah, my father gave me different tricks to try and and get over that. And and it certainly worked. But, yeah, that was testing. Um, The other times was, uh, you know, when I wasn't enjoying my cricket work. When I didn't enjoy being out there, being on the road, that was really difficult. It was difficult to kind of get up and about and be positive and put a smile on your face because in a team sport, it's important that everyone is is on the same page, that everyone's looking to do the same things. And if someone is down, it, it saps the energy from everyone else to try and get that person up. So and there are probably two examples of where I found cricket quite mentally 
emotionally and physically draining. And like you mentioned earlier, that's life, isn't it? There's peaks and troughs, there's highs and lows in sport and in life in general. And having these mental strength skills to sort of bring things back into alignment and create that clarity again, that's where the real power is to not let us get stuck in those states. Yeah, and and it's extremely hard because things that you normally would do and to get you in a positive state of mind, you don't want to do it or you're too tired. Or for instance, if you like to get up and get some exercise out of the way, and and then that allows you to start your day properly because then you eat a healthy breakfast. Well, if you don't get up and do that exercise, then it just kind of snowballs into you sitting around the house, eating junk food, watching trash TV, and you don't achieve much in the day. So yeah, when you when you break away from those good routines because emotionally, physically, you can't do it. That's when it can really be hard to get yourself out of that cycle. And, and it takes it takes you to be aware of it. It takes you to potentially ask for help and for you to have the right people around you as well. And speaking of right people around you and mentors, who have been some of the greatest mentors in your life and in your career? Oh, well, I guess I'd, I'd have to say my father has played a crucial role in my life and, and how I've tackled everything. I I think uh, some of my good friends that I played a lot of cricket with and against, they've kept me going. There was a period of time where I was going to quit the game of cricket and, and leave the Australian side and a few of my teammates, um, Shelley Nitschke and Sarah Andrews kind of said, nah, you've still got plenty left to give. Don't give it away just yet. You'll kick yourself, you know, in years to come. And, you know, if they hadn't kind of pushed me and Certainly, I, I think I would have retired a lot earlier and, and I also don't think I would have had the opportunity to get into this commentary career either. So, yeah, I think obviously your family and your teammates have been have been the most uh, crucial people. And uh, along the way, I've had some really good relationships with coaches and selectors and, and people that I've kind of spent a, a fair bit of time with, but also know who I am off the field as well. I, I think that's important uh, to know what drives me and, and how to kind of get me out of holes that I, that I might have been in. So, um, yeah, it, like I said, very important that you have those people around you and that you turn to them as well. And how does your mentoring role look to other female cricketers, other sports people, other humans? Where do you see most of your mentoring going these days? Oh, well, I actually coach um, the Mossman Men's Grade Club. So I'm dealing with about 45, 50 guys ranging from ages of, of 15 through to 60 odd. So it's all about connection sometimes. So out of those 60 odd guys, I certainly don't have a connection with all of them. And But there are certain guys that I get along well with and that come to me and ask a lot of questions. So I'm more than happy to help out. Even still within the women's game, there are a number of players that come and talk to me from time to time. And obviously being a commentator, I'm around the game still a fair bit. So they want their feedback and I help out. And it's also part of the Western Sydney Wanderers um, mentoring program for the women's team and got a chance to work with Rosie Sutton as well. So it's been good. And uh, to be honest, the thing is uh, my, my mates, whenever they need a hand, whenever they need someone to listen, I'm there to always help out because they've helped me out throughout uh, a number of times. So I guess uh, when you've been in a leadership role and you've mentored before, I don't think it ever leaves you. I think you constantly do it all the time. Sometimes when you don't even expect to do it or when you don't even realise you're doing it, I think it's just part of your nature to a certain extent. You'd be a very helpful friend to have around with all those skills and that knowledge. Back to the female sport, how do you see female sport evolving in our country and even around the world? Well, it, where women's sport is um, in, a, in a purple patch at the moment, isn't it? Uh, regardless of 
of what the the code is female sport is growing it's almost like a hip thing to do that you go out and watch a women's sporting event and um, I think that's great I think uh, all women's sides all women's players are uh, supportive of each other, which I think is, is vitally important that w- we spend time helping each other and, and ensuring that we follow and keep that positive positivity around. Globally, again, it, it's growing. I guess my concern is that, you know, as women's sports goes into professionalism, I hope that we've learned lessons along the way that the male players have kind of already gone through and that we don't see the same issues that male players have when they put all their eggs in one basket, that I think the that the female players are able to still juggle a few things and have a good sense of balance in their life. So that that's probably my only concern with female sport kind of going professionally. But certainly it's, it's exciting to see where the games, all the games, all women's sport has come to. But can't wait to see what happens in the next five to ten years as well. Absolutely. I love it. I'm enthused by it. I'm inspired by it. I'm entertained by it. I love the evolution that we see coming through. Now, Lisa, I ask all my guests this question, but I, well, because I love actionable advice, that the listeners can take with them. And I want to know, what's your advice on what specific action the listeners can take today to become more impactful in their lives and in their communities? I think in this day and age, we all lead a very busy life. And I think if you take once a month, you ring someone that you haven't spoken to in a while just to see how they're going, to check that they're okay, maybe reconnect after a long period of time of not spending any time together. I think that's a good thing. I think it's important to keep your friends close and and given the fact that, like I said, our lives are busier and busier makes it harder and especially for me I travel four to five months a year a year overseas means I don't have a lot of free time to hang out with my mates so that's something that I try and do and from a community point of view I was going to say get a dog because it makes you get out into your community because you walk <laughs> around and you actually get to meet some pretty cool people that you may not have actually been able to meet or we wouldn't have crossed paths but I'm a big person for you if you see a, an older person that you at least say hello, help them out if they need to. I think that is a big thing. I'm very big about respecting your elders and I think that they're almost the, the lost, uh, the, almost the forgotten generation in this up and coming age. I love that. And for all those people out there that are going to get a dog, if you need some dog rehab, you know who to go to. Yeah, that's dog right. If their ACL. <laughs> yeah, correct. Now, where can we learn more about you? So social media, website, podcast, anything like that? Yeah, uh, just uh, if you want to follow what I get up to, which is sometimes pretty boring or sometimes pretty cool, depending on which country I'm in, you can certainly follow me on, on Twitter, which is Delaker93 or on Instagram as well, which I think is just Elle Stalaker or Lisa Stalaker. I've actually got no idea. I'll find that and I'll link it all up in the show notes. <laughs> Thank you. So, yeah, you, you can see what I'm up to. I'm actually uh, early March. I head over to Zimbabwe for the men's ICC qualifier. So that's one country I've always wanted to go to. So I'll be ticking a few things off there as well, which will be great. And how can I and the listeners help you on your journey? Oh, I, I think the main thing is to be supportive of women's sport or, or women in in sport 
So it could be whether they be on, on field, whether they be part of the support staff or whether they be women in media. I think the environment is changing and there will be people out there, thanks kindly to, to Twitter, where they're quite quick to criticise. But um, the support that you can give any female trying to do their best, I think will certainly help me. It makes my job a lot easier. Now, speaking of giving, one of my top core values is giving and I give all my guests something for coming on to the podcast, for giving their time and abundance of value so I thank you for that and for you Lisa I want to give you a gift to re-gift to someone and when you re-gift it I think it'd be awesome if you logged on to the Kindness Factory website and logged the act of kindness to help Kath move towards her million acts of kindness and the gift is for you to re-gift is a place in my online program and which is called Mental Strength Training to become the best version of yourself. And it's funny to hear you talk about that your father was a sports psychologist and a hypnotherapist and all your expertise in this area and I had decided on this gift before we'd spoken. So oh, really? <laughs> I'd, I'd love for you to have a think about it and maybe there's some, some foster parents uh, through the work that you do there or maybe there's some young female athletes or friends or someone that you know could benefit from the program. Yeah. Okay. Now, Lisa, do you have anything else you'd like to say to the listeners before we wrap up? No, thanks. Thanks very much for, for lasting this long. I hope you found it interesting. Uh, there's maybe some lessons that you might have taken out, but obviously, Brett, you do a wonderful job and I appreciate you uh, inviting me on the podcast. Lisa, you're a legend. You're a powerfully inspirational female leader that is showing all humans around the globe what is possible and not probable. Keep shining your heartfelt light to the world. Thanks very much. I love it when things like that unfold during an interview. The story of Lisa's dad being a psychologist and her believing that a lot of her success was due to her mental strength training at such a young age. What a legend, what a story. If you're interested in optimizing your mental strength and you understand the belief that I and most of the guests on this podcast preach that our minds are the greatest tool we have and we can all learn how to utilize them and not let them control us, then you're going to want to join my online program, Mental Strength Training to Become the Best Version of Yourself. The first program has been interactive and some of the results that people are sharing with me are mind-blowing. You can find out all the information at yourlifeofimpact.com forward slash coaching, which I'll also link up in the show notes. Also, remember to follow Lisa online and to support her on her life journey. And as always, remember, this is your life journey, your life of impact.